Welcome to Moving the Needle, casual conversations about ways, big and small, to impact student learning. Brought to you by the Faculty Center for Teaching and Learning at the University of Maryland, Baltimore. I'm Erin Hager. Let's move the needle. Today's episode features Dr. Corey Stema, the Daniel Thurs Distinguished Professor for Social Justice from the School of Social Work. Corey has degrees from Bryn Mawr College Graduate School of Social Work and Social Research, the University of Pennsylvania School of Law, and the Tel Aviv University School of Law. Corey was named the Maryland Educator of the Year by the National Association of Social Workers. Today we'll talk about how the pandemic provided Corey an opportunity to rethink her course from the inside out. We'll also talk about the importance of knowing your students and the support a faculty member can receive by participating in a community of practice. Corey, welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. We're so thrilled that you're our inaugural guest on Moving the Needle, and I'm really excited to talk with you today. Let's just start by having you tell us a little bit about the courses you teach at the School of Social Work. Okay. Um, well, I teach um, courses at both the master's level and the doctoral level. Um, I've been teaching the uh, qualitative research uh, doctoral level class for about six years, um, and that is a required class um, that students uh, take in their first semester when they're in the doctoral program. So, you know, they come in with um, new and fresh and a lot of ideas and a lot of questions and a little bit of trepidation sometimes as well. Um, and uh, in the master's program, I teach the required basic um, social policy class that all social work students must take. Um, and then I teach um, a couple of different or have taught a couple of different classes um, that often relate to the intersection of social justice um, and the practice of social work. And several of them are interprofessional. So I've done a joint course with students at the School of Law. And I've also done um, some international courses. We're currently resuming this class virtually for the spring um, with uh, law, nursing, and social work students uh, with uh, partners at the University of Haifa in Israel. That's wonderful. So tell us a little bit about how your approach to teaching changes when you're working with your PhD students as opposed to your master's students. Um, I mean, some things are very similar in the sense that I always try to come into the classroom and get a sense of who the particular group of students are in front of me, um, you know, and how they're coming to the class. What's their prior knowledge? What's their interest? Um, Do they have any concerns? Um, Often, particularly when I'm teaching qualitative research, although about social policy as well, Um, you know, do they have any assumptions or ideas, possible misconceptions about the topic? So really just to take the pulse of the class. um, And I would say that is similar. Um, The the MSW students, you know, are there to get a practice degree, most of them, although some of them do have plans to continue on and get a PhD. Um, And so um, in that sense, making sure that I'm thinking about uh, examples when I'm talking about things to really connect the conceptual um, ideas um, to their practice. Uh, I'm also very aware in social work, there often tends to be a split between um, people doing uh, what might be considered more therapy or case management, what we call clinical, which is the majority of our students, and students who are more interested in um, policy practice or community organizing 
or careers in administration, um, we group that all together as is common in social work under macro practice. Um, that's the minority of our students, but those are the courses that I teach. Um, so I also try and really think, well, what would a connection between these areas look like on the ground? Um, whereas the social work students were a very research focused um, PhD program. Um, and so um, I also am very conscious of trying to connect the conceptual ideas of the course to practical skills that they're going to be using and how they would use it. But those are more research skills. Um, so it's practice, but practice of research, um, often about practice. Yeah, it it sounds very much like having an awareness of where your students are as they come to you and also where they see themselves going really informs how you approach your classes. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to put it. I don't know that I would have thought about it, but but yeah, that is that is really true. And then and and really just and and in terms of both both of those, right, where they are and where they see themselves going, you know, I try and think in a holistic way. Um this has been really true I think for many of us during the pandemic as well. Right. Because where they that's sometimes connected to what's happening in their personal personal lives that we you know often see. Um, and so um, when I talk about the concerns that they have, it might be, you know, what do they think about their own assessment of their own skills as well in that journey from I love the way you put it from where they are and where they want to go. Yes. COVID certainly has shown this light on so many aspects of teaching and learning. Uh, I want to reassure our listeners that this podcast is not specifically about teaching during the pandemic, but as we record this episode today, we're still very much in the throes of the COVID pandemic, so it's very topical to what we're doing and and thinking about. It's actually how Corey and I met, Uh, and so Corey, I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about how the COVID shutdown and the move to online prompted you to rethink your qualitative methods course uh, and and how that experience played out for you. So... It became very clear. Well, I, I sit on the, the campus wide didactic learning committee. So, you know, we had been talking a lot about, um, you know, what's it like to teach and learn um, and what were some of the shifts we might have to be making pretty early on. Um, and I think that might be where I first learned about the Center for Teaching and Learning. Um, Christina Sestone came and I think gave a presentation. And I remember listening to her talk about some of the wonderful resources that we have available to our faculty to help us not just throw our courses online, but to really think deeply about the fit between pedagogy and the learning goals and the methods of delivery. Um, And so we were still on the call, I think, when I sent an email saying, I want to do that. (laughs) Um, And um, that's how I got connected to you, Erin. And um, so I have to, I had taught hybrid in the past. um, And so I had some familiarity and I knew from work I'd done um, with our, um, at school social work, we have the idea team, uh, a great idea team. Um, I had done some work with them where um, I remember my first thought is, well, how do I just transfer what I'm doing in the classroom and replicate it online? And the biggest lesson I learned from them was um, that it's better to take a step back and think, well, is there something about this medium that might actually, you know, help me do this better or differently that we can take advantage of? Um, so I think the idea of um, seeing this as an opportunity to just, you know, improve my teaching. 
Um, and many of the things that we did together were certainly connected to setting up a virtual class. So what happened is I had to take my class that I always think of as very intimate and necessarily in-person and personal and shift it to fully virtual. Um, but the process also was really useful in, you know, going back to bare bones and thinking about the syllabus. I mean, things I should have been doing with my class, regardless of whether it was going to be virtual or in-person or hybrid. Yeah, sometimes I think these curveballs that get thrown into our lives give us such an opportunity, like you said, to rethink how we're doing things and what we might keep going forward. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about the changes you needed to make with your qualitative research course and which changes you might keep when we're back in a traditional environment? Um, Well, um, working um, with you, uh, Erin, and with Becky, um, I, you know, I had long been feeling that um, that the syllabus was okay, that it had all the elements. Um, but as I change the syllabus from year to year, I try to keep my readings fresh. Somehow it had morphed and become more patchworky. And um, I didn't feel like it had the cohesion or the arc that it needed to have as a syllabus. Um, things felt like they were in the wrong place. Um, I would, I remember at some point, maybe last year or the year before teaching the class and thinking while I was in the class, why did I put this here? This should go someplace else. Or I don't like this article anymore. Or, um, you know, uh, and also I learn a lot from the students. So I might read the same article several times or the same reading or have the same exercise and a group of students will respond very differently. And that might maybe be, so I had some of those instances where I was thinking, I really need to do this. Um, I really don't have the time. Uh, many of us in, um, when we're in graduate programs, if we're not in a program about teaching, we don't actually learn how to teach. Um, so I didn't really have a mechanism to, to systematically think. I mean, I knew how to look at a syllabus, but not really to look at it from a, from a pedagogical you know, construction of that class um, kind of way. I was very lucky in my graduate program. Um, I was at, at, at Bryn Mawr. Um, like I said, we didn't have a teaching class, but we had a group of um, graduate students from the sciences, uh, like neurobiology and chemistry. Uh, there aren't very many graduate students there. And then a group from social work. And we just, we sort of started meeting with a group of professors from the education department at the undergraduate level. And um, from someone who is a neurobiologist and, um, and, and someone who's from the uh, gender women's studies, who's still one of my mentors and good friends today. And they just started meeting with us and we created this space that was, you know, um, a cross between a self-help. So we would come with, we were all thrown into classrooms. I mean, I was teaching without knowing how to teach. Uh, we would come with sort of like, this happened to me this week. And we were also reading about pedagogy and, you know, the, uh, you know, um, some of the classic readings about, you know, Peggy McIntosh and, you know, Eleanor Duckworth. And, um, and we were kind of doing it on our own as a group. So I'm very lucky that I had some of that input, but once we left graduate school, there was very little, little of that. Um, and so, you know, when I met with you, you sent me a storyboard. <laughs> I didn't know what a storyboard was. And so those kind of tools for really approaching your course um, and thinking about it are things, you know, that helped me um, find the coherence, figure out how the parts all fit together, um, and also how that each part, you know, what the role of each part was, and then what the whole should look like. 
I just love how you use the words cohesion and arc to describe your syllabus creation because I think it reminds us that designing a course is really a creative act in addition to being an analytical one. Your experience at Bryn Mawr, it sounds like you formed an impromptu community of practice, which is such an important part of any faculty member's professional development. We did. Um, it, it's funny because it was a long time ago. I graduated in 2005, so this is 16 years ago. Um, and, and like I said, um, I'm actually still very, very close to uh, one of my fellow students um, and one of my, my mentors uh, who's there. And we continued that group for, for years, um, even after I had graduated and I was teaching at, at Maryland, um, it morphed in different ways. Um, and um, one thing that's very interesting that I'm a qualitative researcher, obviously, because I teach qualitative research, but uh, best practices um, in qualitative research is also working with what we call uh, peer peer debriefing groups. And, you know, and so we use those groups for every aspect of the study when we're building a study, when we're trying to get a sense of, you know, what biases we might have or how our coding scheme is. And so the idea of a community practice, uh, a community of practice, right, and a place for reflection um, and growing and learning is really inherent in that part of my work as well. Um, and I kind of feel that way about pretty much everything I do. So so that is tremendously important. Um, we have a very, in addition to the, the resources that you provide and that we we also have at the School of Social Work, um, I have wonderful colleagues and we, we help each other out a lot. Often it's on an ad hoc basis. Um, I am a newly course coordinator for our, our required um, foundation level policy class. Um, before that, there were other people who were course co- coordinated course coordinators. Hakusun An was the course coordinator just prior to me, and I would go to her for assistance. And now I'm providing that, um, particularly we, when we have courses like that where we have adjuncts and faculty members teaching. Um, it's really important to provide support, and it could be just technical questions. You know, what do I do with Blackboard? But it could also be this: this class isn't working, or maybe there's a particular concept that um, is difficult, or maybe. Do we use an example for vaccines now because it's really, you know, lively and people will be excited or will that be troubling for people? Even sort of questions like that. Um, And so communities of practice, uh, I think, are really, really crucial. Um, You know, the other thing, and I like your idea of creativity, um, you know, talking about the syllabus, that kind of thing as well. Um, One thing that I think that that you were really helpful to me, Erin, is sort of thinking about also the class itself, you know, what, what is the purpose of every exercise that I do? I think sometimes we set some things up and, and, and we, we kind of forget. Um, and so refining, um, the way I describe it, an assignment is an assignment necessary, is a component of a class necessary? Does, should this be small group? Should this be large group? Why am I even doing this in the first place? Um, you know, so I think thinking about the purpose of the things we are asking students to do, um, are they necessary um, and how do they have to be done um, as well? I, you know, I don't know if I, I want to get, I don't know if this is getting ahead, but um, I remember there was a point in my semester where I kind of called in an emergency e- meeting or sent an email up to you and I said, you know, I'm really worried. I had a student um, who was participating uh, from another country, with, another time zone. Um, and I was concerned, um, she had spoken to me about the difficulty of maintaining um, a huge time zone difference. And 
um, you know, could we think about making some parts asynchronous or making a change? Um, I have to be honest, my first reaction was like, no, we can't possibly do this. You know, the in-person component, you know, I was sort of very stuck on the way that I had it. Um, and then I took a few deep breaths, you know, um, and, um, and I emailed you and I said, okay, I'm feeling like I'm not sure I could do this. Can you help me think through how to decide, is it possible to shift something? And then what are some creative ideas that might, um, might accomplish the components that I feel are necessary for this class, um, and these assignments while also meeting, you know, the needs of the moment and the particular students in my class. Yeah, you know, I think that is such an important point that you're making here. There are so many ways to accomplish a course goal. And sometimes as faculty members, we just have to articulate not only the academic part of the experience that matters to you, but also the social and emotional experience that the students will have. Sometimes that can be a bit of a hidden agenda. And so putting light on that and saying, no, it's really important to me that students in this particular activity see each other's faces or have the comfort of real-time interaction for this activity. Um, it's important to articulate that from the very beginning and, and step back and really say to yourself, what do I value from both an academic standpoint uh, and, and also a, a, what kind of learning experience do I want the students to have? I think when the pandemic hit and you had to revise your course, I think you did such a great job dismantling all the course elements and looking at them in a unique way instead of just saying, well, this is how it's always been done and this is how I've always done it. You really took each piece and evaluated it um, and, and thought about how you wanted to make those changes meaningful for your students. I mean, I, and I think that's what, that's where I think your help comes in, right? I think some people might think, well, I teach, you know, X and it's a topic area. So how does somebody, um, whether it's instructional technology at social work or whether it's you, you know, in terms of teaching and learning um, every, not just instructional, you know, pedagogy. I mean, I think that's the part where, where pedagogy is it's, its own science and art. And so I could come to you and say, well, it doesn't necessarily matter what I teach, that part of what you help us with is figuring out a process. So I'm not sure I would know to ask those questions. That's what happened. I could, that you said to me, okay, we'll think about this. And then the other thing that I feel like um, you were able to help me with, and Becky helped with this as well, is, well, hmm, if this is what you need to do, then that allows you to be able to give me suggestions so that we can brainstorm together whether it's appropriate, right? Um, and so that sort of combination of um, of really skills that can be applied to any teaching area. So I would recommend to anybody, regardless of their teaching area, that these are things that we could apply. And it does kind of circle back to, you know, at Brimmer, I was sitting with, a, um, with students from biology and we were asking the same kinds of questions. Um, you know, you asked uh, very early on what were some of the differences between my PhD class and my MSW um, teaching. And um, one thing actually that as we're talking, I'm thinking about is that happened in this particular case. And I always tell my students is that PhD students, many of them will be teaching. Um, they might not ultimately go on to teachers uh, careers in teaching. Uh, well, although some of our MSW grads, actually, uh, many of our adjuncts are, are wonderful, you know, MSW alumni. Um, but but the PhD, they many of them are thinking about jobs where, where teaching will be a significant part of 
their work. And so I actually always tell them, I'm like, you know, the Wizard of Oz with the curtain drawn back. Like, I want to share with you. I want to model for them. Um, You know, I think coming to them, you know, making people feel like everything is always complete and we know how to do um, is is sometimes a disservice. Um, So obviously you want students to feel comfortable, like they're in good hands and that you are professional. But I think it's really okay, particularly with um, PhD students and, you know, particularly when there's a crisis, but even if there isn't to say, okay, these are the things I'm thinking or um, and and letting students know that there might be a change and this is what I'm thinking. Um, and for them to see that I go to professionals for help in teaching, that it's okay, that it's okay to take a step back and think about things and it's okay not always to have the right answer. And then it's okay for somebody to ask you a question and and challenge you um, and not take it as a personal affront, but to think about it as, hmm, okay, let's think about this. Um, so I feel like that modeling in the teaching is another sort of parallel thing that happens when you're teaching PhD students. Yeah, yeah, that's such a great point. Like you said, you don't want the students to feel like you're coming into class without a plan or that you haven't thought this through, but... At the same time, there are changes teachers make on the fly or circumstances that present themselves where you as the educator need to shift gears or maybe you're trying something new. Uh, My experience is teaching Spanish, and I used to teach lower level students, freshmen and sophomores. Even with that demographic, if we were trying a new activity, I would just let them know. I'd say, "Okay, I'm trying something new. I don't know how it's going to go. Here's why I'm trying it. Let me know what you think. And uh, just inviting students to be a part of that process shows a respect for them as learners and that we're all learners in this space. I I never had an experience where a class didn't come along with me and at least give it a try. I think as educators, it's easy to feel as though we always need to be projecting this aura of expertise. But I think you're absolutely right. That's a disservice uh, because as our students go into their own teaching experiences, it's helpful for them to know that there's this whole back chatter happening as you're teaching about what you're doing and how you're doing it. And I think shining a light on that for our students uh, can only help them going forward as they become educators. I'm also listening to you thinking about, you know, some of the early readings that we did, like the feeling like a fraud reading, which, you know, is is sort of a famous one in terms of pedagogy, what happens when you stand up in a classroom and, you know, your level of con- uh, confidence. Um, and so I think actually in terms of that, achieving that balance, I know that I'm good at what I do. I know I'm a good qualitative researcher. I know that I have the skills, you know, I might not know how to convey that. Um, and so I think, you know, knowing what your expertise, if you're teaching Spanish, you have expertise there. And so it's not that you're coming to them really with nothing going on. You're coming with expertise and sort of recognizing where, you know, where we are need to be humble or show that we can both have expertise and be learners is really important. And I, I can't not say, though, that I think that, you know, there's definitely a gendered component here that I think very often as women, you know, our expertise is challenged in, in different ways. Um, and, um, and so I think that that can sometimes feel particularly challenged to, to feel confident and comfortable enough and to know that your class respects you enough and your knowledge for you to then be able to also say, I'm going to try something new or, you know, you're right. This might not be working with this class. Um, so, so I I think I want to point that out because I think it's important. Absolutely. And it's so interesting you say that because so much of what we know about teaching and learning uh, involves bringing the students into the experience and engaging them actively. 
But what's typically seen as quote unquote expertise is that sage on the stage, right? So let me just stand here and tell you all the things that I know. That can create the illusion of expertise, but as far as the learner goes, it's actually one of the least effective methods of transferring knowledge and information. So it's kind of ironic that what we think of as projecting expertise can actually work against the student if it's done in such a rigid way. Uh, It's so interesting. Um, In what other ways do you notice your research and teaching informing each other? Well, maybe maybe the part, I mean, I think there's just so much of it, but um, so in qualitative research, one of the things we often try to do is to understand what we call an emic or insider perspective, right? So um, generally people, humans, um, make decisions that when viewed from inside their own head or through their own lenses are rational and often ethical. Um, and many of us, when we're not thinking through people, we're like, why is someone doing that? Why would they possibly do this? That is not a smart decision. That is not a thoughtful decision. Um, and, you know, um, there's a premise that, no, actually, you know, if you understand where people are coming from, then actually it might make sense. And so um, if we understand why people do what we do, then we can, you know, be partners with them. We can, um, you know, understand how maybe something might be harmful that we don't intend it to be harmful. Um, we might recognize that people have expertise in their own lives. And, you know, um, and so that's an important part of qualitative research. And I think the sort of thinking about where students are coming from, you know, how does this classroom look to somebody when they walk into that room or they click on the Zoom link. Um, I think it's important. Um, and it's important not just because if we're, you know, good humans or ethical humans or teaching and social work, we, we care about their learning um, as educators. But if we want to be efficacious in our teaching, then we also want to know. So there's both, I think, a moral component to that. And then there's an um, um, you know, uh, effectiveness component in that. And so, um, so I think it's really helpful to think about my teaching, um, that way. And I think that's a connection and even doing it for myself, recognizing, you know, my feeling of like, I can't possibly change this is me trying to think in my head, well, what is going on, Corey, you know, and then, um, reaching out to you and having me, you know, helping me walk through it to help me have a little bit more awareness. Um, so I think that that's a, a similarity or something that's maybe mutually fruitful. That's great. If uh, if you could go back in time, maybe during your Bryn Mawr days in that learning community of practice uh, and share with yourself something that you've learned as an educator, what would that be? Hmm. Well, I can t- maybe um, this is exactly the answer, but I think it might, you know, um, do it. <laughs> what the question to do is um, so when we were creating that community of learning, um, there was a, a PhD student in chemistry, Cheryl, um, and she and I kind of took the lead on creating a certificate for teaching and learning. We thought, oh, this will be good on our resumes. And then also it gives some coherence to some of the things we're doing. And we created it together. Um, I think only like two people myself included, ended up, I don't know what happened to it when we left. Um, But what it was is, um, you know, we had this ongoing series of lectures. And so um, you had to attend X out of however many lectures. And then there was sort of a menu, like choose two items from column A and, you know, three items from column B that you could do. So it also allowed people to choose areas that they wanted to um, 
And so one of the areas that I chose to do from my, you know, self-imposed required list of things was um, I observed, um, I did two teaching observations um, and um, then I reflected and I wrote about it. Um, so one of them, you know, I observed my very wonderful dear friend who's a uh, was a professor of education at the time and she's now um, st- is still teaching Jody Cohen. Um, and, you know, she gave this terrific interactive, you know, she teaches education. Students were moving around and writing, writing on boards and all this really wonderful stuff. And I was like, this is really great. Um, and, um, you know, uh, and then I, I watched my my dissertation chair, who is also, you know, my mentor and uh, you know, Jim Baumel um, and, uh, you know, a fantastic, wonderful teacher. I loved his classes and he gave a very different kind of lecture. So he is more, you know, um, sage on the stage in a very small classroom. So it's really not that the classes were small, but he gave a wonderful lecture and it was erudite and, and gripping and interesting. And, um, you know, there were some questions, but it was really much more this lecture style. And the class that I was observing was actually a class that I was going to teach for the first time, um, like, you know, the following semester. And I thought, okay, you know, and it was in my, it was in social work. So it was, you know, and, and, and I was like, that's the way I have to do this because this is this class. And I remember standing up and trying to emulate him who was, and he was great at what he did. Like I learned so much. I was his student and the student, you know, students really, you know, um, I think learned a lot in the class and, and it was a disaster. Like it, it wasn't me. Um, I couldn't do it. I can't lecture that way. I mean, I've learned a little bit more since, you know, in terms of how he prepares, which I, I, you know, maybe didn't know at the time, but it just wasn't me and the class didn't go well. Um, and so I think the biggest thing that I've learned that I've really tried to remember from those days, and that was from those days is, you know, um, you know, yes, be prepared. Um, yes, think about your teaching and put an effort into it, but you also have to be who you are. And if you try to be someone else, it's not going to work and you're not going to feel good. The class probably isn't going to go well and for good and for bad, you know, so if I'm a little bit more enthusiastic or, you know, I go a little faster or, you know, if that's who I am, that's who I am. And then how to think about, which doesn't mean you shouldn't improve, right? I mean, it's not, you know, but, but, but be who you are and then think about crafting the best lesson and the best classes you can that are true to that, um, to who you are. Oh, that is such fantastic advice. I think I want to make t-shirts and and hand them out to new faculty. (laughs) It's uh, it's almost like wearing clothes that don't fit. Uh, It's so true. You just, you need to teach in a way that feels authentic to you. It's wonderful, wonderful advice. Um, So we've gone back in time. Uh, and now if we were to jump forward in time, are there any innovations or approaches uh, that you're seeing as an educator that excite you? I think to some extent that's still in formulation. Um, but um, so I'm very excited about um, the the virtual uh, interprofessional internet global local um, class that I'm developing. And I'm actually working as a global Baltimore fellow with uh um, the, the Center for uh, Global Initiatives, who are also terrific, and they're creating a community of learning and, you know, so all that kind of stuff. Um, so I've been really excited about uh, making some changes there. I'm listening to what other people are doing with their classes and sort of rethinking the model. Um, but um, so I'm very excited about the opening up of possibility of accessibility. So, for example, when we're doing this um, 
international exchange, I would bring students to Israel. Um, and uh, we didn't have funding for students. And I felt pretty uncomfortable about, about that. And that was one of the reasons that I, I stopped teaching it for a little while to kind of rethink that and try and raise some money. And, you know, because you don't want to teach a class on social justice where actually some people can afford to go and others can't. Um, and so um, so the opening of accessibility, so providing opportunities to more students to engage in um, international programming and to be sitting in a classroom, you know, with people from two countries. Um, so I'm really excited about more accessibility. You know, what does that mean, making um, education and opportunities accessible to all? Um, similarly, I brought in, a, we were reading an article, I brought in a guest speaker. Uh, we were reading an article that I had assigned. Um, I know the author, um, she wrote a piece um, that was self-reflective. So it was an autoethnography of herself as a doctoral student doing research. Um, and, um, her, you know, Dalit Yesul Bolichovich, and she's, uh, she teaches in Israel. And the students had a very strong reaction to what she was writing, both in terms of her research process. And she was writing, she did interviews with um, men who had been abusive toward their partners. And so there was, you know, some, and, and, the, and the student, I felt like the class was very, you know, um, I don't, fraught, not in a bad way, but you know, they had, it was loaded. Um, and I said, well, I said, you know, I know the author. I said, why don't I see if she'll come to class next week? So I emailed and I said, delete. I said, can you, my class was really excited about your article. Um, there's a seven hour time difference. You know, I mean, we're on two different continents and we arranged for her to come. And then it was made even easier the sort of pen palling thing. I asked, she wanted the students to write a really brief reflection. Well, I already had a discussion board going and I said, you know, I didn't want to create extra work. I said, instead of answering my discussion questions, this is what Delete wanted to know about you. You answer it. They posted it. I was able to send her their answers. So she had some sense of who the class was. Now this small class, so it was easier to do. And then she, she Skyped in. Um, and, you know, it was, it was, uh, we are, my class is two to five. It was nine o'clock at night. She stayed with, with us till 1030. And, um, and so I'm excited about those kinds of possibilities that allows, um, not just for, you know, more accessibility, both to a larger group of, um, you know, maybe professors or, or to teach or for students to have opportunities, but impromptu. I mean, it, it also meant that we didn't have to prepare so much. She didn't have to get on a plane or, you know, we didn't, so not just as, as much money, but, but sort of time and, and thinking about it, it just wasn't such a hard thing for me to send an email. So I think making things easier, I'm really excited about, about that. Oh, that is so thrilling. And it really connects with what you were saying earlier about being a Glow Baltimore Fellow. Uh, and in fact, we're going to have Dr. Carlos Farron Guzman uh, on our guest list for this podcast. And we're, we're hoping to talk with him more about global education in a future episode. So stay tuned for that. And yes, that ability to respond on the fly to your students' energy uh, around that article and make something happen, 20 years ago, it would have required so much effort. It wouldn't have even been possible. The planning alone would have made that so difficult. And here you can just take advantage of that immediate energy and enthusiasm and and expand that learning experience in such a deep way. It's really amazing. Yeah, and it's not just the global. Um, so I'm also doing my PhD students, um, they have to do, which you, you know about, they also have to do kind of a, a, a research, a learning by doing. So they're doing interviews and the interviews they're doing is we had set up a study and it's actually a real study where they it's gotten IRB approval and they're, so they've been interviewing people and I've been reading through the interviews about their experiences as uh, graduate students during COVID. 
Um, so, you know, I would say that some of those things about accessibility and affordability um, are coming through in those interviews. So it's not just the international, but it's, you know, what happens to our students when they need to be caring for somebody or, you know, um, you know, how much easier it is if that let's say they don't have to commute. And on the flip side, we're also learning from that, you know, that there are certain things that we can't not, you know, there are certain experiences that, that people miss or there are certain intangibles. And, and, um, and so, you know, what is important to students around education, you know, the networking, the creating communities of practice that you're talking about, um, you know, people missing hallway conversations. Um, so I'm also excited about, you know, sort of, sort of learning about, when we, you know, what I'm learning through these interviews about what are some of these intangibles for students that the pandemic is bringing to light that will then carry forward. And, you know, yeah, we always try to do, you know, mixers and, and informal opportunities, but hearing from students that these really matter and the ways in which they matter. Um, so that that's a stay tuned that I'm, I'm wondering how to address, but happy to be, um, have it flagged for me as something that matters. Oh, that's so great. Yeah. One final question uh, we're hoping to ask all of our guests. If you had to identify your teaching superpower, something that comes naturally to you or through lots of hard work you feel now is a strength of yours, something you feel very confident about with respect to your teaching, what would you say your superpower is? That's a hard one. Um, I think maybe it's the personal connection and the curiosity. Um you know, and that's maybe also the connection between the research and the teaching. Um, I really like people and I am really curious about people and I want to connect with them. Um, and um, I think, I hope it comes across in the teaching. And I think that that makes, you know, that brings just a lot of benefits, you know, it, it um, signals to, to people, hopefully, right, if they're getting it the right way, if I'm able to convey it the right way, um, that that I care about their learning, that I, I care about them, that I'm, I, you know, that I want to have a connection with them. Um, and I think that, that that makes people maybe more open to learning and more open to taking risks and more open to sharing where they're, you know, where they want to learn. Absolutely. I can I I can see that that came through just in our conversation today. Every time you talked about your students, you could just feel your care and compassion and curiosity for them coming through. And uh, Corey, we cannot thank you enough for joining us today. What a treat this has been to have you as our very first podcast guest. We are so grateful and uh, just thank you for the work that you do. Thank you. Thank for ha- thank you for having me. It's been really fun to talk to you and it's been so wonderful to work with you. Thank you for joining us today on Moving the Needle. Visit us at umaryland.edu slash fctl to hear additional episodes, leave us feedback, or suggest future topics. We'd love to hear from you.